Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December, not December. I don't know why I keep on saying December. It is February the 2nd, 2022, uh, in. San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Earlier today, we did a show about how technology is creating a world without choices, a kind of surveillance state. It's with a, uh, another Bay Area writer, Jacob Warb, who is the NBC News technology correspondent. Uh, in my conversation with Ward, we, or he at least, argued that uh, technology... Um, is a bad thing that it's taking away our choice, but there are good ways in which technology is used, particularly when it comes to solving crime. And that is what our show today is about. Many of you will be familiar with um, an iconic book, Mind Hunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, um, which is a crime thriller. It's by Johnny Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Uh, it got turned into a uh, the Netflix um, series, which is also iconic, uh, has its own Wikipedia page. It was uh, uh, executive producers with Charlize, uh, Charlize Theron and uh, David Fincher, both uh, also iconic Hollywood uh, characters. Um, the co-author of uh, Mindhunter, the book got over 8,000 ratings on Amazon, which is really astonishing. The co-author, as I said, is Johnny Douglas. Uh, the, the book is written by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. And uh, the team is back. Uh, you'll all be pleased to know. Uh, there's a new bird. Douglas and Olshaker have a new book out. When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, and justice in a small town. Um, John is joining us, not from a small town, from somewhere near Washington, D.C. We won't reveal exactly where he is. Uh, John, it's a real honor to talk to you. I'm thrilled to talk to such an iconic author. And uh, uh, would it be fair to call you a policeman? How would, what word would you use well, to describe yourself? I was a former, uh, I was an FBI agent. FBI uh, agent. So yeah, you're a yeah. real agent. You're not like the kind of people who... Um, portrayed on television, although it was revealed in my research on you that uh, uh, the creators of the television show Criminal Minds confirmed that the characters of the FBI profilers Jason Gideon and, De and David Rossi were based on you. You are a profiler. Is that a fair way of describing you, John? Yeah, that's, I didn't start off that way when I joined the Bureau, but that... Uh... Yeah, that was a criminal profiling is what I got into and developed while in the Bureau. Uh, and in explain, the late what exactly does a criminal profiler do and how have you pioneered that field? Okay, well, first, how, I, well, let me tell you how, you know, what we do is we basically, we reconstruct a crime. We look at the uh, uh, evidence collected by, by the police. We look at the crime scene photographs, the autopsy protocol, um, we may or may not go to the scene if the, the photos are, are, are good and they were well, well done. The case was well, well prepared. 
And then based upon uh, all those different factors, we attempt to develop a, a uh, whodunit type of uh, type of situation, the type of personality that, that would do it. Uh, the development of this individual may include uh, prior criminal history, what the kind of crimes this person would have had leading up to the crime that we're looking at right now. Uh, so we have a whole host of, of descriptors of the individual. Uh, just before I, I retired from the FBI, though, uh, because the purpose is, is to generate leads, uh, leads hopefully coming in through the, through the public at some point, but certainly for the, you know, for, for law enforcement. And, and so the uh, what, what I began to do toward the end of my career was really focusing on pre-offense behavior as well as post-offense behavior. And that is the behavior of the individual after doing this research that I did, going through prisons, doing multiple interviews, is what caused this person to perpetrate whatever the crime may be. It's not just always serial murders, whatever the crime may be. What pushed him out that door that day to start perpetrating a crime, whether it's arson or bombing or, or uh, rape cases, ho you know, homicide cases. And there's all different motivational factors be behind, uh, you know, all of that. So, so that's what... Uh, uh, that, that was the, the purpose, uh, and that's what I began to develop for the Bureau. But when I joined the FBI, I never had an, I, I really didn't uh, see that in my, in my future. Right. You, uh, I saw an interesting piece on you um, talking about how you found your calling. You spent four years in the military. You joined the FBI in 1970 when you were only 25 years old. Did you know much about profiling when uh, you joined the FBI? No, not at all. And, and it didn't really, it didn't really exist. And I, and I joke around when I was recruited, I was recruited by the, uh, an FBI agent um, in, a, in a gym where I, I was going to graduate school and I was working out at this gym and I was just always nice to people. And, and little did I know this one older gentleman there was an FBI agent. Never talk to strangers, John. Isn't that the first law of policing? What's that? Never talk to strangers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he, so he, he talked, he told me about the FBI and I said, you know, I, I kid around. And I said, I didn't even know how to spell FBI. And, and so, <laughs> so, so I was working out in the, in the gym. You know how to spell it now? Yeah, yeah, I got it down now pretty, pretty well. I was uh, six foot two. I, I was like 220, 220 pounds. But to be six foot two, these are days of J. Edgar Hoover. The most I could be was 195. 195 and so and i had this interview coming up in two weeks so i, I went on this crash starvation diet and got down to to 195 about the weight i am yeah you know t today but in those days with hoover hoover was, was the only one who could have this super duper body you know was, uh, the rest of us the, we the bureau turned away athletes people that that were ripped with three percent body fat because they couldn't get down to the, the height weight uh you know weight standard so how did you find your calling, John, after this okay, uh, so, conversation at the gym and the fact that you joined the FBI? Yeah. yeah. So what happened was then I you go back to training, 14 weeks of training at the FBI Academy. Um, and, uh, and the FBI Academy opened up in about 1972 is when, when they when, when they opened up the full academy. Uh, when I was going through training in 1970 in, in Washington, D.C., uh, we would go only down to Quantico Firearms. Behavioral science did not exist, did not exist there. I then I'm sent to Detroit, Michigan, and I get involved in working uh, violent crime. We had over 800 murders a year that year, uh, and we were working, I was, a lot with the local, the local uh, police. 
And then on to Milwaukee division where I became a, a sniper on a SWAT team and a hostage negotiator. So I came back to, to Quantico to be, to be trained uh, in hostage negotiation. I was also in graduate school working on, on a couple of advanced degrees. And at the age of 31, I will be recruited by the FBI now to go back to the uh, well, you were, well yeah, John, to jump in, I apologize if I'm yes. interrupting you. Um, yeah. Were you always fascinated by criminality, by criminals, by figuring them out, by fingering them? Well, I was, I was always interested in the, uh, the criminal personality, but I'm, I was always interested in, in learning and learning from others. Even as a young kid, I would, I would hang around with older people. My parents had a family over or friends. I'd like to listen and try to, you know, to learn from them. But what, as I got into the FBI, you see, I'm in graduate school. I'm, I'm in psychology, educational psychology, that, uh, those types of courses. And, and, but I see that the, there's a behavioral science unit back at Quantico. They're teaching hostage negotiation. And they got something called criminal psychology. And so they recruit me to go, you know, to go back to, to Quantico. I'm going to be the youngest agent now at 31 years of age, just before my 32nd birthday. And my my job now is teach hostage negotiation, but also to 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 sit in the classes of the older agents, the agents, the senior agents, which I did, who are teaching criminal psychology. And while in those classes, what was surprised to me is, is that my the people I'm supposed to be mentoring were being challenged by police officers, FBI agents, students, who when an, say the instructor was talking about Charles Manson, someone raised his hand and say, hey, wait a minute, Mr. So-and-so, you got your facts wrong here. I worked the case, your facts are wrong. So how would you like to be in a class where you're you're there trying to mentor, trying because you have to be up there one day. And I had a very good, strong investigative background working in Detroit, Milwaukee, but now it's, it's, it's different. And so, my goal, what I envision here, I just wanted to be a good instructor. So when we would go on road schools for like two weeks at a time, we call them road schools. You go to maybe a week to Boise, then you got a week to LA. And in between, you know, you're sitting around, you can only drink so many margaritas or whatever you're drinking. And so I told the agent with me, let's go into prisons, man. We're here in LA, we're up in somewhere up in Northern California, or Vacaville. Let's go see if Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer will talk to us. Let's see if Charlie Manson, and we got the FBI creds. We don't have to you know, announce ourselves. We just go up. We can, we can go in. We could tell the warden what we want, but we don't really have to. Uh, and, and we'll see if these guys will talk. So what I started out to be was just a, a, a to learn a, a good instructor. So you go in. A lot of and you talk things. to uh, you've you've talked to everyone really, haven't you? Uh, to- yeah, I mean you 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 talk to the zodiac ciphers. You talk to um, uh, you 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 talk to the, most of the people. You talk to um, many of the serial killers uh, uh, in America over the last thirty years. Is that fair? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Of course, the Zod- I don't know if you meant what you said about Zodiac. Zodiac has not even been identified to this, this day. He still remains uh, unknown. unknown. Any so, tips on who the Zodiac killer really was then, John? No, they, when that case was going on, we were relatively new. And and uh, we were, to get involved in the case, they have to ask us. If they don't ask us, we're not 
We can't do it. It's just like all these cases that I'll be involved. Was in. Was there tension I'll, between you and the and and the detectives? Did sometimes you don't want to come in if they brought you in? Did sometimes you wanted to get in and they didn't want you? Oh yeah. Sometimes you. Sometimes you. Just because you're invited in doesn't mean they want you. They could they could be getting uh, pressure from the media. Uh, they uh, based upon maybe who the victim is. Uh, I've been involved in cases where case was old and now they're asking is in. Why haven't they asked us early, uh, earlier in in the uh, in the case? And sometimes what happens is is that a, a, the sheriff or the, uh, the chief of police may attend the FBI academy and they take this course, criminal psychology, and he had a class maybe from Douglas here who taught him about the uh, the, the, the criminal mind, criminal personality, and and how to analyze cases. They go back home and they have a case. So they think of me and they think, okay, let's get Douglas or his people. Let's get him in on his case. The minute you get, you arrive at, uh, at that, at that uh, requesting site, they, uh, you can tell right away whether or not you're welcome, you know, or not. And, and many times I have to say, have to, and I, I can see it when they don't want you. And I bring it to their attention and I'll have to say, hey, look, I know what, uh, I know what's going on here. I said, but if I do my job right by the time, it's time for me to go. You're not probably not going to want me to go or, and my team here to, uh, to go. And so we are talking, uh, this is the, the true story of John Douglas, uh, <laughs> the real mind hunter who profiled serial killers from, uh, from Ted Bundy to John Wayne Gacy, former FBI agent John Douglas has interviewed just about everyone in that hall of shame. Um, <laughs> you, um, John, you... Um, you pioneered, uh, you started the FBI's criminal profiling uh, program, uh, yeah. as well as I think the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime and the Behavioral Science Unit. What do those units do and why did you found them? Yeah, well, the original Behavioral Science Unit was primarily an instructional, instructional unit. And there, I, as I said, I was in, in that unit as an instructor. But now I'm, I'm doing all these interviews uh, in uh, in prisons around the country, interviewing every rapists, murderers, assassins in, in our in our country. And now I'm in the classroom initially teaching. But now here come the cases. The cases start coming in. So what happened was here you got the behavioral science unit consisting of about eight agents. That's all all it was. And they're teaching uh, subjects related to police from police, police stress, contemporary police problems. Uh, you know, those types of, uh, you know, types of subject matters. And there was a, a, an agent teaching criminal psychology and he was dabbling in it, but he had never gone into the prisons to, to really do any kind of research. And, and so from that, I, they gave me the title of program manager and in, in about 1980, about pro, program manager. And it was, I was now full-time. That's profile. a euphemism, John, program manager. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I don't was, know. The police don't always have a much of a sense of irony, do they? Yeah, no, that, that's that's true. It is, it is true. But for that program, uh, what happened now uh, to me uh, was that the the cases started coming in, and so my first year I had about 79, 79 cases coming in as a result of being that instructor in the classroom. So I couldn't do that teaching anymore, and so. They made me this pro, so-called the program program manager, criminal the criminal profiling program. Later on, we developed a program called 
uh, BICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, a program where it's, it's a computerized program where we try to link cases from throughout the United States based upon the MO, based upon what we call the signature, something uh, unique that the killer may do in the case of a, uh, a homicide. So this began to grow. And, and by, say, by 1983, I was in full swing. I didn't know where I was half the time, psychologically. That's scary. Going, John Douglas in full swing. Um, you well, were was, a young man. You were just driven by the whole thing. Were you obsessed, John? Did you have a private life? Could you sleep at night when you were you know, working with these terribly no, violent criminals? No, no, I had a hard time. I had a hard time sleeping. I was married. I was I, married, still am married. And, and uh, Did your wife know what you were doing? Did you oh, tell her the stories of what oh, you were she, doing during, over dinner? She could, she couldn't help notice it. And, uh, I had when I, by 1983, I'll nearly die on a case. So what was happening? Which case was I, that, John? That was, I was on the uh, Green River murder case in, in Seattle, Washington, and I would collapse in my hotel room at age 38 and, and, um, and nearly die from that. And, where, and I'd come home, uh, in a wheelchair and I came home, uh, uh pa paralyzed. And I was just so burned out. I went to a stress psychologist and who uh, said, John said, you know, if it wasn't this, you would have had something. You are just burning the candle at both ends. And I said, I can't, I can't help it. In fact, in the beginning of 1983, I sat down with the assistant director who was really liked me, was supportive of me and, I, and we're having a beer. And I said, hey, Jim, and I said, I can't take it. I can't take this, the, the volume of the work as well as the nature of the work. I'm just... I need help. I need to get resources. And he said, John, you know, you know, the FBI, you got to nearly drop dead before you can get the, get the resources. And sure enough, by the end of the end of the year, I'm training up in New York city to about 300 cops. And during my presentation, all of a sudden, I think I'm having a heart attack. My heart is just pounding and pounding. And I know my material. So my mouth is moving. I'm talking to the group, but what, I'm thinking, Douglas, you got to re regroup, regroup. You, gotta, you have to regroup. I was breaking out of sweat. No one probably detected anything. But when I came back, came back to the FBI Academy, I knew I, I, something's going to happen to me. So I took out extra life insurance, income protection insurance. <laughs> and, and then I, by the time I, uh, the, uh, the day I had to head to Seattle working on the Green River murder case, so your the listeners would know the, the killer would end up being a guy named Gary Ridgway. Uh, but yeah, I got a, a little thing so, about Gary Ridgway. Killed 71 women. Why didn't right. you get him before that? Yeah. You let him get away with killing 71 right. women. Yeah, he was, you know, he got away with it. He was leaving little evidence at the time. And, and, uh, and it, it depends. It looks like a killer to me, isn't it obvious just from someone's face? This well, guy. the thing is, when they get they get arrested, they look they all look pissed off, and they get. They get oh, so you mean before he was arrested, he didn't look like the killer? He... Yeah. So I had to take two Asians out there. Can we go to you know? Can we to talk get about Ridgeway. Yeah, I had to take I had to take two agents, relatively new in my unit, in the bureau a while, but relatively new in my not even a unit, my program. I say goodbye to my wife, and then I think I better say goodbye again. So she's a school teacher. I went over to the school. I say she's goodbye a school again. teacher, your wife, and you're arresting this Gary Ridgeway who killed seventy one women. Well, it's it's an unknown sub subject, so I got to go for a task force out there with these two agents. But I, I have this tremendous headache in the right temporal lobe, and uh, and my wife say, "Hey, you don't look well." You, I said, "I don't feel well, but I have to go out there." And and I, I was just all over. I, I 
I would wake up in a motel room. I wouldn't even know where I was half the time. I was over in England on the Yorkshire Ripper case. I was back from that. And I was up in New York, <laughs> Buffalo's 22 caliber killer, up to Alaska on a guy hunting women like wild animals. So I, I wouldn't even know where I was. So I go out there, go before the task force, tell the agents, hey, I think uh, I'm getting a flu and it's Tuesday. I'll see you Friday. And this was pre-COVID, John. So you couldn't even blame it on COVID. No, right? I can't blame it. I, I can't blame COVID. So the last thing I remember is I collapsed. Uh, I collapsed in a hotel room, but had before I collapsed, I had to not stirrup sign on the door, and, and no one will disturb me until Friday. And I'm on that floor uh, in a coma and paralyzed. And uh, when they kicked down the door on Friday, uh, then they rushed me to the emergency room. They uh, my body temperature was between 104 and 107. And it split uh, the right temporal lobe in my brain. How, well, how, you're in your 30s, right? 30, yeah, I, was, I just turned 38, uh, you know, 38 years. Uh, Did you have any kids? Had two. Had two uh, two young girls at that time. Let them later have a oh son. And you're, and you're hunting these serial killers who mostly kill young girls. Oh, I don't know how you survived. We are talking. This is an amazing conversation. I, I've, I haven't had more fun. For years, John, uh, we are talking with the co-author of When a Killer Calls, John uh, John Douglas, um, and uh, he is somebody who has um, spoken to many, many different uh, serial killers. He's an iconic figure in the field. He is um, the the real Mind Hunter for those of us who have watched uh, the Netflix Mind Hunter series, and he's got this new book out. When a killer calls. I, I, I want to take a break now, John, and then I want to talk about when a killer calls. We could be here all day talking about your your previous career and Mindhunter, but we need to talk about the new book. It's just out, When a Killer Calls. Uh, it's co-authored by uh, Johnny Douglas. And uh, after 60 seconds, John, we'll be back to talk about your new book. So hold oh, tight. Great. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, 
there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with John Douglas, the real Mind Hunter, uh, the guy behind Mind Hunter, uh, the author of Mind Hunter Inside FBI Serial um, Crime Unit, and the author of a, a really scary and profound new book, When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, and justice in a small town. Uh, John, why did you choose this particular story to write a book about? As you said in the first half, um, you've met them all. Um, you've investigated them all. Why choose this particular story? Uh, because I, I, I never had a case at all, you know, quite like this, where where the the offender in, uh, in this case is contacting the family after the fact. This was an abduction, rape, homicide. And, and the offender was a man called Larry Jean Bell. Here we have his Wikipedia. Right. He deserves a Wikipedia page, but he has one. Right. So here, um, he, I never had a case like this. We had, like David Burke was the son of Sam in New York. He would contact uh, uh, Detective Joe Borelli, uh, uh, detect, uh, contact the media. We had the Zodiac contacting uh, detectives and, and the media. We had... Uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK Strangler, who I interviewed as well in Wichita, Kansas, and, and he would contact the police and the media. But here, I mean, here, uh, uh, and they're all worthless human beings, all of these people. But here's to put it mildly, what, what, what did he do? Well, th this is what happened. It, it's uh, it's uh, May 31st, 1985, and, and Sherry Faye Smith, who's going to be the victim here, is at a pool party with her boyfriend. It's a Friday. On How Sunday, old is uh, Sharon Smith? She's Sherry's uh, 17 years of age. She's going to be uh, graduating on Sunday. She's going to be singing the national anthem at her high school uh, graduation. Uh, she stopped off at a shopping center with a boyfriend. They were together in the car for a while. And that's probably where the subject uh, spotted spotted them. And, and he would be very fortunate in his mind, this guy, Larry Jean Bell, when he saw that they separated and went in different cars and so he tails Sherry uh, Smith and gets be behind her. What, and her routine would be is when she got to her home, she'd pull in the driveway, park near the mailbox. Her house sits about 200 yards uh, from, from the road. Her dad is in that house and the mom and the dad is uh, in his office in the front part of the house looking out. And he could see Sherry pull alongside and then heading over to uh, the mailbox. He leaves the office. He leaves his room. When he returns... The car is still there, but where's Sherry? So he goes down to the mailbox and and get down to the car. The car is still running. In the front seat is her handbag, uh, which is significant because in the handbag is her medicine. Uh, she has a certain type of diabetes. If she doesn't take that medicine, uh, she will require to, to drink up to a gallon of water an hour or she'll become dehydrated. And at the mailbox are the letters that have been been uh, dropped by her. So whoever is there, uh, whoever perpetrated uh, this crime, had to be able to gain control over over her. Probably had a, a weapon to to control her and take her take her away. Uh, what makes the case so different is the next day he's calling the family up and giving them false hope that she's still alive. 
she's alive and that Sherry and I, we've become one and, and, uh, uh, he's he's teasing him. He's just teasing him, giving him this false right. and hope. He, uh, his background is that um, he's from Ralph, Alabama. I'm assuming that's a small town. He joined yes. the Marine Corps in 1970, was discharged the same year. Tell me about this man. What what, yeah. what was the matter with him? Yeah. Well, this, we'll develop the profile later. What we'll find out, we'll jump ahead. What we'll find out uh, in, the, in the analysis, you know, fit him down to a T, is that yeah, he joined the military. You just put up there that information, and he shot himself. He probably shot himself on on purpose. It says accidental. He wanted to get out of the, out of the military. He joined the military to see action, kind of like David Berkowitz did in, in uh, the Son of Sam in New York. He wanted to kill people, but he never got a chance of, of doing it. And so he got out of the service. Uh, he had a criminal history, Larry Jean Bell, that criminal history that was that we predicted would be that he would be involved in, in uh, obscene telephone calls to to uh, to voyeuristic activities, to exhibitionism, but probably have some type of criminal history, which uh, because of the, the sophistication of of uh, and the. Uh, the nerve to how he was able to. Right, and, and, and John, sorry to interrupt us. You were brought in. He started, nobody knew who he was, of course. This woman is, a, this young woman is abducted. He starts, um, the abductor starts calling uh, Sherry Smith's sister and you are brought in to, to, to profile him. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm brought in to, to create a profile after the second abduction murder. He goes out and he kills a uh, and abducts a nine-year-old child uh, who's playing at, uh, about 50 feet from a trailer where her parents just moved into this trailer, pulls up and grabs her, and then he uh, you know, takes her away. What he does in both of the cases, though, he, w he waits and then tells, he tells, you, you mentioned the, the, uh, the sister of Sherry Faye named Dawn, tells Dawn where we can find her, the sister. And even then, giving false hope that we'll be waiting for you. We'll be waiting for you. Here's he didn't tell me uh, she's been murdered. We'll be waiting for you. Well, we go to that uh, that site. Yeah, we she's there, and his uh, directions were, were just so detailed that it was you could just another characteristic we developed was this obsessive compulsive personality. This ritual guy. It's the kind of guy you go to his garage and he has outlines for every tool. Like the, here's the outline for the for the screwdriver or or the uh, the hammer. He also, when he gave directions later on, he gave directions to the Deborah Helmet girl, the nine-year-old uh, you know, girl as well. And it was days later. And the reason he did that, and again, it reflects on his criminal sophistication, was because it was so hot uh, down there. When I got there after the second uh, second murder, it was so hot. And he, he knew about decomposition. And he knew if he let these bodies sit a while in the hot, blazing sun down there, it, it would decompose to a point where we wouldn't be able to determine method and cause of death uh, if, the, if the victims were uh, sexually uh, assaulted. So that said something else about him as criminal a criminal history, which he would have, turned out he would have. He would spend five years in prison for another abduction, and they rehabilitated this guy and put him back into uh, society. And so when I got down there, the sheriff was beside himself, and he says, John, he stopped calling. He said, he stopped calling, and you know we got to get him to call keep them on the phone uh, you see what in those days you had to keep someone on the phone about 15 minutes yeah there were no cell phones right no so. no cell phones we've got to have traps and traces so you got to got you need a good 15 minutes 
So they, they, I said, I'll, I'll get him, I'll get him to contact us. And this is kind of the part, kind of a scary part. Uh, and they thought it was risk taking. I did not think it was risk taking. Uh, go to the house and meet the family. I could see. The, this is a, the, the second girl. They, the, the, no, so we're back to the first. Because oh, he's focusing in on, he's really focusing in on the first one. And Dawn now, he's focusing in on the sister Dawn. And, and, and you can tell it, it, how he's communicating with her. And so I meet with the family and I tell uh, Rob, Robert Smith, this, a wonderful gentleman, we still have contact to this day, the father of Sherry Smith, and tell him, I have an idea. What is it, John? You're kind of hemming and hawing. I says, well, I really like to use Dawn here and sh show Dawn how to, to keep him on the telephone, keep him on, on the telephone and using some of my hostage negotiating skills and, and, and restating the content, you know, just regurgitating back what the subject said, to keep him on the phone. It was also, I said, can I please see Sherry Faye Smith's room, please? So they take me in a room. And the first thing I see are, are koala bears. There's koala bears everywhere in here. And so I'm thinking ahead because people think or people don't know, they think it's just you profile. No, you know, you may not be able to develop a profile. So you do you develop proactive techniques, something what you know, something hoping that maybe perhaps I can get the guy to, to inject himself into the police investigation. In this case, I'm hoping I can get him to go to the gravesite, get him to go go to the gravesite. So I tell the cops and I tell tell the family I want to have memorial service. Uh, and I want, I want uh, Dawn, and I gave, I gave her this little koala bear that I, I took from Sherry Smith's room to place this, this koala bear on a flower at the grave, at the grave site. I want a podium painted white, and I want uh, Sherry Faye Smith's photograph and plexiglass placed on, on type, and we're going to have this memorial service. And we're hoping this guy will, will start recontacting us again. Plus, we're going to, my hope is, you see, you see, in previous cases, these killers and other uh, would tell me how they were, in fact, like old Sherlock Holmes. They'd go back to the scene. They go back to, to the yeah, scene. Yeah, and you the, said about um, him um, uh, on on Bell that he's the most sadistic murderer you've investigated. Is his was his sadism essentially psychological? Psychological, psychological uh, sadism. Uh, I think the other ones are definitely like one movie Silence of Lambs. Uh, when I was working with Scott Glenn, who portrayed me, the actor Scott Glenn, I, I let him listen to a tapes. And, and, and here's a guy, hard nosed. He got welled up with tears. He had no idea there were people like that. Uh, this guy is sadistically uh, torturing, uh, you know, torturing uh, the family. I mean, he's a smart guy. I mean, he's evil, but he's smart, Bell, right? Yeah, he's 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 not IQ wise, not smart, criminally criminally uh, smart through experience, through past experience. And that was also, we felt that. And also, the other thing he was doing, was he when he would call he was changing his voice he had some type of an electronic uh, divorce, uh, device that would change the tone and pitch of, of his voice initially but then after a while like so many of these killers they get so confident that yeah. they, he ditched that and that's usually the time we start we catch him we have to kind of wait for that time so sure enough we do this we do that proactive thing we have the memorial service and he starts calling again and, and we jot down all the license plates of, of the, the vehicles that are going going by. Had we not identified him the way we are going to identify him through forensics, we would have got him that way. Uh, we would have got him that way sooner or later. Unfortunately, though, there may have been another victim who could have been a victim of his because 
we would find out that he went by that cemetery. But because Sherry Faye Smith was buried so close to the road, uh, I knew, he, in fact, when I saw where she was going, it was buried. It was too, I didn't think he would get out of his car and go there. He would drive by. So we had his license plate. And if, if we had, then we would do criminal checks on all the plates that were, were drove by slowly. And then we would have come across this guy and we would see uh, from the criminal history that, man, this guy really fits. So it would have, that would have brought us to him for, for a initial, initial, uh, you know, interview. So how did you get him in the end? Okay. In the end, what, what happens, what happens is the forensics, uh, uh, that letter, uh, uh, well, I don't think we even mentioned it, Andrew. He, he made uh, Sherry Faye Smith, we didn't mention, write a last will in testament. Oh knowing God. she was going to die and she's saying goodbye and, and uh, it, to a mommy or daddy and a brother and boyfriend. Uh, and please, uh, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't be mad at me or anything. Or, or I, I, the one thing I'm requesting is you have a, a closed casket, have a closed casket. And, and uh, from that piece of evidence, we sent it to the Georgia Bureau investigation and GBI the forensics, hair and fiber evidence, but there's also a device back, even back in 1985, where, you know, when you write on a piece of paper, you write on a piece of paper and, and you press down, you remove the top paper and there's indentation. Well, yeah. well, what happened here is that, uh, that from that indentation, we came up with a telephone number and also as a grocery list and then a telephone number that took the investigation to uh, you know, to Alabama. And, and the prefix was Huntsville, Alabama. And, and we had uh, everything, everything but one digit in the telephone number missing. We couldn't, the machine couldn't pick it up. So through the process of elimination, we, we come up with a number that takes us the investigation back to Lexington, South Carolina. There's a connection here with this, this number. And so the, the detectives go out to the to uh, the house, knock on the door, and a middle-aged man comes to the door. Uh, the Shepherd family, the, uh, their names, and and uh, the detectives say, "Oh, gee, this guy doesn't fit Douglas's profile. The profile that was developed. You, you mind? Can we come in?" So they go in and they sit down with him, and they find out that he's an electric an electrician, and and uh, they start giving him the FBI profile that we did. For, you know, all the demographics down here mm. to include the occupation as, as as being involved in electricity of some type as an electrician. This guy's an electrician. The family, the, the husband, wife, they look at each other at the same time. They say, Larry Jean Bell. And then they say, and this was in our analysis. They said, they said uh, that this guy would change his appearance after uh, while these cases are going on. They said, Larry Jean Bell picked us up at the airport. We hardly recognized him. He grew a beard when he didn't have a beard. He lost all kinds of weight and he was obsessed with the investigation. In fact, he had all these newspaper clippings, which serial killers will do as well. You knew immediately that it was him. Oh right? yeah. So the, and then they played the, the audio tape, played the tape. And again, they said, that's like, you know, Larry Jean, you know, Larry Jean so, Bell. So tell me about the arrest. The, okay. uh, so all you. Right. So then I get involved. arrest and trial. Um, what, how did well, you get the, the arrest is kind of interesting and, and the interrogation because because that's another service will provide we assist prosecutors and sometimes we may testify, uh, but not that a profile fit a guy. You can't you never should talk about that because you can do a profile that could fit somebody had nothing to 
you know, to do with the uh, the crime. But anyway, uh, they did not have a task force. So overnight, in a matter of hours, they had a, a trailer that was that they obtained in a drug deal, and they, the police had, and and made that a task force by putting a sign up, major crime task force. Inside, we put file cabinets in with Bell's name all over it. We had maps on the walls. We had his residence with a line going to the abduction sites. You know, all this stuff heading you know to him. You know, back to him. But I'm not going to get involved in the interview at this time because. If you get involved in the interview, Andrew, with all these cases, you'll spend half your life in uh, at trials, and, and I can't do it. We got, we got all these other other cases, so they have them for a period of, of hours and hours and hours. I'm just waiting with an agent who's with me, or an agent Ron Walker, and all of a sudden the door opens up, and here's the sheriff, and now the they call him solicitor in South Carolina. It's a prosecutor, and he's funny. He says he introduces that draw, that southern accent, and he says. You know who these boys are here? He said, This guy here, John Douglas, he did an FBI profile of you that fits you to a T, Larry Jean Bell, fits you to a T. And the next thing, you know, he leaves. They leave, and I got Larry Jean Bell. I, I, I got this wasn't even a plan. So sit down, Larry, sit, sit down. I sit down on a couch. I'm on a, I sit down on a coffee table. Not, I want to violate his space. I give him my background. I talk. I, 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 the kind of work I do, I never. Did you want to kill him, John? I mean, you, What's you that? have to restrain yourself. To, yeah, you, you, you got to do a little acting. At this person point. you ever, he, he he killed two young girls. He forced them to write their will and testament. He was calling the girl's sister, taunting her. Yeah, Did you have to restrain yourself talking to him. You knew he was guilty, right? No, I, I, what I have to do is I have to. Not, I'm not, I'm not going to do an interview. I'm not going to do an interrogation. I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to tell them everything about me uh, and what I do and the people who I, I interview, what I learned, how I apply to, you know, to, uh, you know, to cases. And I, and I said this line, Andrew, I said, you know, some of the people I've talked to said that, uh, that it was like a, like almost like a dream. Like there was a good side of them and this bad side of them and, and they perpetrate the crime and, and they don't realize that, uh, my goodness, you, you know, did I, did I do this? And, and, and so he's looking at me with these bright eyes. He's looking at me. And then I say, I segue right into when did you start, start feeling bad about this crime? And he looks at me and he says, when I saw the, uh, the cemetery, when I saw the family at the, uh, at the cemetery. And, so and even he, he had a, even he had a conscience, but his, his trial. Yeah, he's, 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 he's BS. And you know, they, they kind of, they, they still, he's, he, you got to watch him because you know why, Andrew? Because he's thinking of the future. His butt's going to prison, uh, a good chance in South Carolina, uh, execution. He is low on the totem pole as for criminals. They're going to be on him, not only inmates, the prison prison guards. So they're looking at the future. So I'm trying to give him a way out to, to express himself. So he's thinking insanity. I'm going to claim an insanity defense here. So so then I said, uh, what do you think, uh, Larry? Uh, you think you could have done something like this? And he said, the good Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done this, but uh, the bad Larry Jean Bell, you know, could have done it. And you yeah. said that the, the trial, um, you write about, uh, the trial was pretty bizarre. And, and you feel he was, of course, executed. He was electrocuted. You feel that was the right end to this? Oh, yeah. I mean, you saw about you know, how I am with him. I mean, I, when I saw how he destroyed this this family, 
I mean, he got, uh, it was almost too good for him. The surprising thing, he could have died by lethal injection, but he selected uh, uh, the electric chair, which is a tough way to go. And I think the reason for that in his mind is because I know the guards would be on him, the inmates are on him, and, and he's this coward, this child, child killer. He'll show how tough he is. So he took the, he selected the uh, death by electrocution. John, what would you say to people watching this who'd say, he was profoundly evil and barbaric, but that's no excuse to behave in a barbaric way with him, that he should have just been locked up for the rest of his life. Yeah, well, that's fine. Too. You know, that's fine, too. I mean, um, with offenders, you know, lock them up. But there's, there are certain crimes. I just believe in the death penalty. There's certain, I mean, there's... Yeah, if you don't believe in the death penalty for this one, you you don't believe in the death yeah, penalty. Yeah, you don't believe in it. And then... Uh, just like, just like you go, just like a prison guard, a, a guard who, who's in this environment, all his whole life is in this every 365 days a year. If he's killed by a guy who's in there for life in, uh, imprisonment without parole, what, what are they going to give him? Another life sentence? It means nothing. So their job is extremely, extremely dangerous, as well as police officers. And then when you get a guy like Larry Jean Bell, in this this case here, uh, it just, it, 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 it's, he would have kept killing. It's, it's his obsession. These are crimes of anger and power. Yes, there's a sexual component to it, but they're crimes of anger and power, manipulation, domination, and, and, and control. And there is no remorse. I have some sadistic killers like crying at, at times during the interview. But really, if I could tap into their brain electronically, I would find out that they're crying for themselves. Their life is ruined. They could, they cannot identify uh, by killing you or killing you know killing me. It's almost like you know it's a poor me type of thing. Without my life, I came from this dysfunctional, and most of them do come from uh, this dysfunctional life. But that doesn't make doesn't mean that everyone in that environment is going to turn out to be be bad or, or end up killing uh, killing someone because it's free will. You still have these choices. You made the choice. You made the wrong choice. Now you got to suffer the consequences. And if, that, if people watching this, if you're not if this doesn't encourage you to to buy uh, John Douglas and Mark Olshaker's new book, When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, and justice in a small town, nothing will. I'm sure. Um, uh, I'm sure uh, that it's going to uh, be another huge hit, big book hit, and I'm sure that Netflix or Amazon or Apple are going to make it into. Uh, a, a major production. So, John, um, I'm not sure if I should congratulate you. Uh, it's such a dark subject, but uh, certainly it's a real honor to talk to you. Uh, as I said, you're, uh, you are the, the guy, you are the real mind hunter. You have a new book out, When a Killer Calls. It's just out. What else, uh, John, in early February should people be really reading in, in, in addition to your book? Well, those who looked at uh, the series um, Mindhunter, uh, there was a woman in there. A, uh, she, there she was a psychologist, but in reality, she's a psychiatric nurse who uh, helped me. And she just came out with a book. Uh, she just came out with a book in, in December called A Killer Killer by Design. Oh, I'd like to get her on the show. What's her name? Uh, Ann Burgess. Doc, yeah, she'd love to be on, Dr. Ann Burgess. But you'll have to introduce me, John. Yeah, Boston, uh, Boston College. And, and uh, yeah, she's amazing. She's the one who came to, to us and she heard about this. She, a lot of her work is on the victim side, victims of rape, and the victims of homicide and dealing with the families. 
And she, you know, she's really, uh, you know, she's really a wonderful. Well, that's certainly a book that we'll have to include. John, uh, John Douglas, a legend. And it's a real honor to talk to you, the co-author of When a Killer Calls. Not going to give away your real uh, your real location, John, because some of the crazies <laughs> might be after you. But you're doing humanity. You've done humanity a great service, and you continue to do it with your work and particularly your writing. So thank you so much, John. Thank you. Glad to have you back on the show again. There's so much more so. to talk about. Thank well, you. I hope so, so. Much. Thank you. Thank you so.